Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 13, if you'll join me there. We left off in the 13th chapter last week in verse 5. And in this particular chapter, we began to see as we uh, look at the beginning of it, that it is beginning to deal with the subject here of the incredible danger and the threat of a false prophet or someone who may speak uh, things to the people of God that would draw them away from relationship with the Lord. Now, just for context sake, though we looked at verses 1 through 5 together, we'll pick it up in verse 6, but I think it's worthwhile for context just to sort of take a running start at this, to uh, go down the the uh, ramp, the runway there to, to get the plane off the ground. Let's just read together verses 1 through 5 for sake of refreshment of what Moses is speaking about here. He says, verse 1 of chapter 13, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer, And again, take note, arises among you. Uh, The threat isn't always from the outside. Uh, And here God warns the people among their own congregation there that there may arise among them. Even as Paul speaks of in Acts chapter 28, how, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 20, as he gives warning to the Ephesian elders, how after he departed, he said, savage wolves may come in from outside, but he said there also may rise up from among your own midst, that is, from right within the congregation, the church itself, those with perverse desires in their heart to draw away, he speaks of disciples after themselves. So again, the threat isn't always from the outside. Here he says, arises from among you. Someone again, who's spiritual, who seems to have some anointing, some supernatural measure of uh, dynamic to their life, a prophet, a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. Again, we talked about how not all miraculous works, all wonders, uh, though they are supernatural, are necessarily from God himself, that the devil himself, the Bible teaches in multiple places, spiritual beings, the devil himself being one of them, can as well cause a miraculous sign or work, certainly in a deceptive sense, not in a way to lead people to God. And that sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, some seeming spiritual success. And he says, but then the message, that's the problem. Let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Doesn't matter of the miracle, the message has got to be the thing that you weigh out the content of. And the message is to go and serve another God. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall not walk after, or excuse me, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So again, these would be occasions where the loyalty and the love of God's people would be tested, whether they would, in a sense, have a fascination with the sensational and the miraculous and the supernatural, or whether they would be loyal and dedicated in their love to the Lord, whether these things were in front of their eyes or not, that they would hold fast and obey the voice of God above all else as the truth that they would follow. Then verse 5, that very severe instruction from God, how to deal with the false prophet. He says, but that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. So as we talked about, a, a capital crime. It was according to Mosaic law and in the nation of Israel, like murder, like kidnapping and other things, adultery. This was a capital offense in the nation of Israel. That's how serious God saw someone who would pull away 
His people, from their love and their relationship with him, did not matter whether they were a prophet, a dreamer, a spiritual leader. If they did such, he says, that person shall be put to death because he spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away, God says, evil from your midst. So we talked about the incredible severity, the danger, the threat, again, of someone that would lead a person astray from God, particularly a spiritual leader, a prophet, a teacher in that sense, and the severity of how dangerous God saw because of not just the physical threat, but the eternal and the spiritual threat, which is always much, much more dangerous. And I think you could somewhat encompass verses 1 to 5 by way of our own present day situation that in the same manner, uh, you know, we need to evaluate our willingness to follow a spiritual leader. Again, whether it's some teacher, some spiritual leader, some prophetic voice, a lot of times people get caught up, oh, wow, they can do this, or they seem successful, or charismatic, or, I mean, they, they do all these things, and it seems they're so powerful and sensational, And but listen, the thing that you have to boil it all down to is this, is does following that particular teacher, or spiritual leader, or ministry draw you closer in your relationship with God, or are they drawing you in some ways away? from your relationship with God. Listen, if, if all they're doing is impressing you with who they are and the sensationalism of who they are and they're drawing you closer to themselves or they're drawing you away, you have to evaluate as the result of following this teacher subscribing to this leader's influence, am I drawing closer to God? Have I become closer in my relationship with God? If so, that's a good indication. Anything other than that uh, is a dangerous individual to follow, and I think we have to be cautious and careful. And so here, this strong instruction, severely putting aside, actually putting to death any false prophet among the congregation of Israel. Verse 6, he then goes on with this same mindset, saying, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, so one of your own children, keep in mind the, the, the close intimate love relationships here, the wife of your bosom or your friend who is your like your own soul secretly entices you saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers of the gods of the people all around near to you or far off from you from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth Again, verse 8, the instruction, you shall not consent, so you don't agree, you don't allow yourself to cooperate, nor listen to them, nor shall your eye pity them, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. The idea is protect or hide them from the consequence of what they're doing, just like the false prophet or dreamer of dreams. But, verse 9, look at this, you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be the first, because you know about it first, against him to put him to death, and then afterward the hand of all the people, and you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you, look at it, away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, wow, we look at that, and in one sense, it may be hard to swallow. Wow, it must have been really hard to, if somebody was a false prophet, to put somebody to death 
for being a false prophet. But can you imagine how much harder it would be if it wasn't some person perhaps you had no relational connection to, just some guy among the congregation that was a false prophet and guilty of enticing people to walk away from God? But imagine, as he says here, verse 6, if it actually was your close relative. What if that person was your brother or your sister or one of your own children, your son or your daughter, the bonds that were there, or, or he says the, the wife of your bosom, so your spouse, someone who you're dedicated in a close relationship with, or your friend who's like the best friend. Again, your soul is knit to them, and it's this person who's actually guilty of enticing you to walk away from your relationship with God or is the one that is being used to influence you to subtly move away from your relationship with the Lord. Imagine the incredible gravity of that weighing on you and realizing now that you have to choose between emotion or dedication and loyalty to God. And here God says that even if this happens and it's happening secretly, in the same way, you're not to consent, to listen, to have pity on them or spare them, to put emotion before what is right in the sight of the Lord. But he says, verse 9 to 10, that they were actually to be put to death, again, in the same way as the false prophet, because of the incredible threat of that spiritual cancer and the effect it could have. It was that severe that God did not want his people being pulled away. And again, how interesting to take notice there. Notice in verse 6, he speaks of secretly enticing you. And that's often how it would happen in a relationship. Typically, when there's closeness and familiarity, there's you know more of kind of a subtlety to the whole thing of like, I mean, come on, I mean, be reasonable here. I mean, how long have we known each other? And I mean, do you, do you really need to be that fanatical? I mean, I mean, just it's not that cut and dry. And I mean, and don't you love me? I mean, I'm your son or I'm your spouse or I mean, and, and there's that, of course, that, that pressure and that difficulty that would come of what happens maybe behind closed doors that it's, it's almost more of, of a secretive, subtle thing where the emotions are then being pulled and the heartstrings are involved and how difficult that would be. And of course, we look at this passage and what God is obviously indicating to his people, Israel, is that they were to be more devoted to God than to any human relationship at all. Listen, God calls us to be devoted in our marriage relationships. That's clear. His word teaches that. God calls us to be devoted as parents and children and, 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 and our love relationships. God's word upholds family, ladies and gentlemen. It has nothing to do with that. God's word highly esteems family in an incredible way. But God says there is a higher devotion and a more important loyalty and that is that no human relationship in our life should ever supersede in its importance or in its dedication or devotion in any way our devotion and relationship to our God, to our Creator and to the Savior of our soul and for what He has done for us even as He had done this for Israel. Again, Jesus... God in the flesh himself ultimately said this in the New Testament. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, in some ways, that's, you know, that's almost hard for our human logic to wrap around that. We know the love that we have among family. We know the incredible love as a parent, imagine, that you have for your own son or your own daughter or the natural and born love of a child toward their parent. And Jesus says, listen, 
Yet I demand a greater level of love and devotion than even that. He doesn't say you should love your son less, love your daughter less, love your mother or father less. What he says is you should love me more. And my love that you have for me should be greater than that. And Jesus says in Luke 14, something similar, verse 25 and 26, it says great multitudes went with the Lord. So the crowds were increasing. And listen what Jesus would say when crowds would increase. (laughs) He turns around and says, great. Now we can build a bigger ministry. No, he doesn't say that. Listen to what he says. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus instructing us there to hate our father and mother, to hate our children, to hate our spouse? Of course not. He wouldn't contradict himself. So God tells us to love our family. What Jesus is speaking about there is what he's saying is our love for our family in comparison to our love for him should look like hatred. This is the idea. Jesus saying your level of love for your wife, for your children, for your family in comparison to the supremacy of the love and devotion you have for me, it should look like hatred in comparison. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he says to to hate father, mother, or even your own life also. The idea is that our love for the Lord in comparison to our love for ourself and our own self-wants and self-desires, it should look like hatred in comparison. And, And Jesus here says this is necessary in order to be a disciple. Again, this is why we live by faith. These are challenging concepts. But this is the level of dedication that our Lord asks of us because of who he is and the right way to have a relationship with him that we're never to let emotion supersede our relationship with the Lord and however that plays that self out listen you have got to come to the place I've got to come to that place in my heart where I realize that this is truly what it means to serve the Lord because there may come a time and come away. Maybe they're not saying, hey, stop following the Lord or pull away. But what if a situation is presented to you and you know the right thing to do in the sight of the Lord? Or yet you have a spouse or parents encouraging you wrongly. Or you have children who are, are in a sense, putting you a place where you have to decide between honoring Jesus or honoring your children And you sometimes have to make that very hard emotional decision. God's word says, always honor the Lord first. Honor the Lord first. And you trust him with those relationships and trust that he desires for things to operate in that way. And again, this can be a very difficult thing. I can't imagine having to carry this out, but yet God's word lays this out here, how they were not to in any way put any relationship above the Lord. And I think what the Lord is saying by way of principle is, that any relationship in our life, we can look at it this way, any relationship in our life that is pulling us away from the Lord may be a relationship that we have to put to death. Because he says here, if your mother or father or children or your spouse or your closest friend is secretly enticing you and saying to you, hey, let's go and do this, pull away. And he says, if that happens, verse 10, they're enticing you away from the Lord 
who was the savior who brought you out of Egypt, and he says, you have to put that person to death. Well, today, maybe God's not instructing us, we're not under the Mosaic law, to put to death our child or our spouse because they encourage us to stop following the Lord in some way. But the truth of the matter is there may be a time where in certain relationships we have to perhaps be willing to sacrifice some of the life and the vitality of that relationship to say, you know what, even if in some way this harms the human relationship, I'm willing to suffer that consequence to maintain a relationship with the Lord if you're going to force me to choose and to trust that God will honor that as he calls us to do that here. So very difficult things, but yet God's upholding the importance of relationship and the danger of being enticed away from him. Verse 11 now, after giving these rather severe instructions of anyone who would pull away the people of God from him, he then says, verse 11, so all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. So if a false prophet was put to death or some dreamer who sought to do a miracle and turn people away from God or a family dynamic where somebody had to bring their own family member, imagine how hard that would be and say, look, you know, this is my family member, but they're seeking to entice us to turn away from God, to worship some other false God, some cultic practice or whatever, and they had to go through this process of actually exercising capital punishment to put to death a false prophet. God says here, one of the benefits of that, verse 11, is all Israel would hear and they would not again repeat or do again the same wickedness. The idea is it would be a deterrent. It would be a deterrent. And we look sometimes and we think, man, why the severity? Why the severity of consequence? Well, because God understands the reality of a healthy deterrent in the same way in society though unfortunately our judicial system does not quite often operate the way it should and many times tends to operate more for the the benefit of the criminal than it does for the victims today today's day and age the reason god establishes laws and punishments and consequences are not only to help the offender but also to be a deterrent to encourage other people not to commit the same offense do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's almost as a way that God says, listen, I don't want to see more criminal activity. I don't want to see more people fail and suffer the same painful consequences. So if one person has to suffer the consequences, they justly should, and it allows five or six or seven other people to take the correspondence course from a distance and say, hmm, I don't know if I want to do what that guy did. Because look what he's going through because of it. And that is the thing that keeps enough of the fear of God or the fear of consequence and the consequences that will come in their life to keep them from repeating the same thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Punishment and consequences aren't always just for the individual themselves who's committed an offense. Many times they're for the benefit and the help of other people who are observing and watching. That's why in the New Testament, even when it comes to things like church discipline, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 5 this. Let me just read you a verse from there regarding elders, spiritual leaders that make mistakes. The Bible says this, 1 Timothy 5, regarding elders. Don't receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So it must be a credible thing if you're going to heap an accusation against a spiritual leader. But then it says this, but those who are sinning, in other words, if there's a legitimate sinful activity going on with a spiritual leader it says rebuke in the presence of all i believe that means the congregation 
that the rest also may fear. Now, I believe that's an exclusive instruction for a spiritual leader and for an elder. I don't believe when somebody fails in the congregation generally, collectively, we should drag somebody in front of the church and humiliate them and disgrace them. I don't think the Bible teaches that whatsoever. I think that that's unloving. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins and to publicly shame someone I don't think is the heart of God. But I do see in this particular passage where God is addressing how to deal with elders within the church, how to compensate them, that they're worthy of their wages, how to interact with them in a role of spiritual leadership and tremendous influence and public awareness that people have of who they are, that when they fail, that they are held to a higher degree of accountability. And that if that leader fails in the same way they're a teacher and an example and everything else in their life for all the people to learn from, that if they transgress the things of God and enter into sin and hypocrisy in such a way God says, if that's the case with a spiritual leader, then their life should continue to be a lesson and the people need the help and the healthy lesson of being able to realize, look, this person has failed and that the people of God would see that consequence and that resignation maybe from a position of authority in such a way where they would realize, oh my goodness, if we've been playing with the matches at home, maybe we better stop. Because I don't want what happened to that man right there to happen to me. And so there's a wonderful thing about a turn. And again, I understand if you come back to me to Deuteronomy, we look at some of these things at times and they're, you know, in our emotion, they're hard to swallow. But understand the, the love of God behind some of these things, the heart of God. It's not that God takes pleasure in punishing or doing such things, but God is from a loving perspective thinking of the greater good and often seeing much beyond where we do just in an isolated situation. Verse 12, he then says, if you hear someone in one of your cities, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying corrupt men, so a few corrupt individuals, have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city. So a little cultic group, if you would, going around spreading false doctrine again, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you've not known. Then you shall inquire, search out and ask diligently. So again, take notice, they were to verify facts. They weren't to presumptively just jump to a conclusion. God always indicates good stewardship, being wise. He says, look, inquire, search out, ask questions, make sure you get all the facts and verify a situation before you act. That's good stewardship and prudence. So there's no overreaction. And if it's indeed true, he says, verse 14, and certain that such an abomination was committed among you, the idea is that a few men have turned a whole city in Israel to false doctrine, to cultic practices, to serve pagan gods, Baal or Molech or Ashtart or whatever. He says that if that's the case and that whole city has now fallen into this, he says, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword. The idea there of striking the edge of the sword is, is a military attack to uh, uh, come against the city, utterly destroying it. And all that is in it, it's livestock with the edge of the sword. And you shall gather all its plunder into the middle of the street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder for the Lord your God. And it shall be a heap forever and not be built again. So again, what is God doing there? God is protecting the greater good of the entire nation. Again, we look at that and just, wait, wait a minute. How could a whole city, how could a whole city 
fall into false doctrine and become so corrupt spiritually, so defiled morally in such a way. I mean, how could that happen to a whole city? I'll tell you how it happens to a whole city. Because one person was not, in a sense, dealt with initially, as God said in the prior verses, and that one person convinced somebody else to spread his corrupt ideas. And then they grabbed a third person and said, hey, as a group, as a few of us, let's spread our corrupt ideas. And then just like cancer, it grows and it metastasizes and it spreads and all of a sudden now you have an entire city. So how does a whole city become corrupt? One person at a time. And how can a whole nation become corrupt? One city at a time. One town at a time. And if it's not dealt with, if it's not addressed and it's not resolved spiritual defilement, moral defilement, it will always spread. I mean, again, where do we get the term sodomy from, which describes a particular type of sin? From what? The city of Sodom that became polluted and infiltrated with a particular sin that the entire city became known for that particular immoral behavior. And again, here we see the spreading of these kind of things. And it was, in a sense, a cancer that would have corrupted the whole nation. And God said... If it takes that to spare the nation, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The Bible tells us in the New Testament as well. So God here calls for this severe action. They were to put to death the city. They were to burn everything in it. The idea, again, was that this wasn't to be done for some false motivation of, hey, we think they have a few jokers over there, so let's go steal all their stuff and kill everybody in the city. God says, no, no, no. You are to just destroy everything. It kept the motivation pure. They were to put to death the people in the city if this is what had unfortunately become of it. And no one was to take plunder or spoil. They were to burn everything, it says, and it shall become a heap forever. That is a memorial that they would see it. A tell is literally the word. And if you go to Israel today, you'll see tells, which basically are heaps of old ruins, which are a reminder of what used to be there at one time and it shall not be built again. Verse 17, he says, So none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you. Again, notice, you see the heart of God in this? This is the heart of God. God wants to bless his people. God wants to be merciful. God does not want to be in a relationship with the people of God of Israel whereby because they're holding on to things that are accursed or unhealthy whereby as they're clinging to those things they have the fierceness of the wrath of God towards them rather than his mercy and compassion and blessing and multiplication. That's what he wanted to do was to bless them. He says, verse 18, because you listened to the voice of of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments which I command you today to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Again, take notice of verse 18. I think it's very critical as a key really to the whole rest of a chapter like that. Because we read a chapter like that and our human reasoning automatically goes to the place where logic says, I mean, I mean isn't it a little drastic? Isn't it a little severe? I mean, kill a person or you know, destroy a whole city? And, and somehow logically for some of us, that doesn't jive with our emotions or our sentimentalism. And, 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 and I think as he says here in verse 18, listen, the important thing is this. Don't listen to your own voice. Don't listen to the voice of reason. 
Don't listen to the voice of other people who say, well, I mean, I don't know. That's not politically correct. That's a little drastic. That's a little severe. That's, that's a little overboard. That's kind of a hard stance against just some things that are maybe a lifestyle or a particular religious belief. And yet the Lord says, no, listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight. And I think it's a good reminder that when we come to areas of our spiritual life, and there are going to be times, listen, ladies and gentlemen, when I'm going to and you're going to read the word of God and God's word is going to challenge your logic. And God's word is going to tell you to obey in some area and his spirit is going to speak to you to do something. And it's going to seem from a logical perspective that I don't know if that makes sense. That seems a little risky. That seems a little strong or severe or I don't know if everybody's going to agree with this or everybody's going to think that I'm a little drastic or overboard, but the thing that you have to resort to is that number one, you listen to the voice of the Lord. Don't listen to your own ideas and human reasoning. Don't listen to the voice of the world and the ways of the world. Don't even listen to the voice of other people who are giving you their opinions. You listen to the voice of the Lord and you secondly, do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Don't do what's right from your perspective, the way you see the situation or your vantage point or how it looks like it should unfold or if I do this, then that's going to happen. Don't get caught up into that. You say, Lord, from your perspective, what is the right thing to do here? Lord, I want your approval. Because listen, at the end of the day, if I know, Lord, I've listened to your voice and, and from your perspective, you agree with what I've done, then you know what? I don't have to have the approval of everybody else on the planet. If I know I have the approval of the Lord and I've done what's right in his perspective, I can lay my head down on my pillow at night and have a good night's sleep. Because Lord, you're approving what I've done and I want to earn your approval and acceptance before everyone else. Jesus said, beware of when all men speak well of you. <laughs> That's when we need to beware and we need to be careful we don't get caught into that trap of wanting to do what's right in the sight of culture or what's politically correct or what others think or even what we feel or think at times because we want to obey God's word and live by faith and not just by feelings. In chapter 14 now, God is basically calling his people to live distinct, to live different. And again, many of these things here we've already covered in the book of Leviticus. Again, they're being reiterated the second time for the next generation before they go in. Things about death and dietary codes. We looked at them in prior chapters. But chapter 14 says, You are the children of the Lord your God, and you shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are, here's the basis of the chapter, you are a holy people. You're separate. You're distinct. You're not like the nations of the land of Canaan, the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites, the pagan peoples of the land who had pagan practices. He says, you're a holy people to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special people, a, a privileged people, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So they were to remember the Jews, the, the, the congregation of Israel, that they were God's chosen people, that he selected them. He, made, he gave them a special position, a special place of favor in his sight. He made them his own people. They were to be holy and therefore they were to be different as the people of God. And that's what this chapter is about, that they weren't to be like the people of the world. They were to clearly live differently because God called them to a different life in their relationship with the Lord. They were to be set apart 
and distinctively different in the way they lived and operated. The one thing he mentions in verse 1 there is that they were not to observe the same practices of how they responded to death. You see what he says there, verse 1? He says, you shall not cut yourselves nor shave your, the front of your head for the dead. These were practices of the Canaanite people. They were part of their pagan rituals and this was customary in some of their religious practices even of how they showed honor even to their gods. Remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah's challenging the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel and as they're realizing that their uh, God Baal is not responding. They work themselves up into this emotional frenzy. And then remember ultimately what they do? It actually says they begin to cut themselves. They begin to cut themselves. And the idea of that from their religious pagan practice was they believed that if somehow that showed their dedication, that they were willing to bleed for their God, they were willing to, in a sense, make atonement with their own blood to earn the favor of their God. So these were part of their practices, their pagan, cultic, demonic practices of cutting themselves, actually self-mutilation to do this. And it also was something that became a cultural practice of one of the ways they grieve for the dead is that actually on top of shaving themselves in certain symbolic ways, they would actually at times in the process of grieving their dead, they would cut themselves. And the idea was a way of relieving the pain from themselves. And, and in a sense, we're going to cause pain in ourselves physically to afflict ourselves to in a sense distract or subdue the pain of grief emotionally that they were feeling. It was a way they coped with death. And what God is saying simply to his people is listen, I don't want you to respond to death the same way that pagan people do. Because you understand differently. Pagan people are going to grieve and do the death process differently. But he says, as my people, I don't want you to participate in those practices. Israel was not to, in a sense, adopt those practices. They were to respond to death differently than the world around them. And the Bible tells us as Christians really much the same thing. In the New Testament, Paul says in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, that we don't grieve as Christians as those who have no hope. We respond to death differently. Do we experience the death process? Yes. Is it hard? Is it painful? Yes. Do we grieve when we lose a loved one? Yes. The Bible doesn't say we don't grieve. It just says that we grieve differently. Grief is a natural part of the the death process. We need to grieve. God's created us to release that emotion, to cry, to grieve. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Grieving for the death of a loved one is an honorable thing. It's a therapeutic thing. It's a necessary thing. But the Bible says that as Christians who understand eternal realities and understand what the hope of Jesus Christ is, we don't grieve without any hope. Have you ever been to perhaps the death of a believer and a funeral or memorial service for a believer and then at the same time maybe you've also been able to experience being at the death of an unbeliever or the funeral service of an unbeliever and you notice the drastic difference in the entire atmosphere at the death of an unbeliever there's just complete despair that fills the room and I've officiated over both types of funeral services. I've participated on the other side of the pulpit at both types of funeral services. And, and there's such a despondency. 
and a, and a hopelessness and, and the grief with such utter despair. This is it. This is lost forever. And there's just a, such a, a dark despair as compared to with a believer when they die and God's people are going through the death process of grief. Yes, there's grief. There's tears. There's sadness. There's pain. But there's mingled with that a sense of, of that understanding of hope and that reality of that this really isn't goodbye. It's see you soon. Because there's that hope and that hope that enables us to carry on and to continue living knowing that we grieve for our loss but we rejoice that they have gained and that there is this reunion ahead. So here God cautions them, listen, you're a separate people. You do death differently. Verse 3 down through verse 21 describes how they were to be different in their diet. He said, you shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. Again, this was kosher Jewish diet. We studied this back in chapter 11 of Leviticus. They were allowed to eat the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer and the gazelle and the roe deer, the wild goat and the mountain goat, the antelope and the mountain sheep. And two requirements, basically how they determined if it was kosher or clean for them to eat as far as animals. Verse 6, here's the two requirements. You may eat every animal with cloven hooves. So the animal had to have a cloven hoof, having a hoof split in two parts. And the second requirement, it also had to chew the cud among the animals. So if it only had a, a, uh, a split cloven hoof, but it didn't chew the cud, that didn't qualify. If it just... Uh, chewed the cud but it didn't have the cloven hoof then it didn't quite it had to have both of those things to be rendered and considered a clean animal according to Levitical diet and dietary codes for the Jews nevertheless verse 7 of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves you shall not eat so these are the things the Jews were not allowed to eat such as these the camel I bet that was disappointing the hare or the rabbit the hot rock hyrex, for they chew the cud, again, but they don't have a cloven hoof. They're unclean for you. Also, the swine, or the pig, as we may say, that was unclean, so they couldn't eat pork. Because it has cloven hooves, yet it does not chew the cud, you shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcass. So again, these things, certainly some of these restrictions were for sanitation purposes. We understand now at this point, some of these type of animals, if not cooked and taken care of properly, yellow fever, trichinosis, some of this was sanitation, of course. God was looking out for his people in love, but it also was a way of separation and just them being able to, every time they ate, recognize again we're different than the rest of the world. And every time they sat down at a meal, there were certain things they would eat and wouldn't eat. And it wasn't even so much about the regulation as much as it even just was the reminder, we don't participate in the same things that the world does. We're different. We live the way God wants us to live. And as they ate regularly was something to do, it was a reminder of that as they kept this dietary code under Mosaic law at that time. Verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the waters. You could eat all the the uh, animals in the water that had fins and scales. Whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It was unclean for you. So obviously fins and scales, all types of fish, but apparently no shellfish. Bummer. <laughs> there goes crabs and lobster and scallops and all that good stuff. Tastes wonderful, but it's horrible for you a lot of times. That's the way it usually works, isn't it? 
Verse 11, all the clean birds, and technically the word birds there is winged creature, is what the term really is, so including insects, you may eat, but all these you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, never hankered for one of those before, the red kite, the falcon, the kite after their kinds, every raven of its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, never hankered for one of those, <laughs> the hawk, after their kinds, the little owl, the screech owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, because they need to bring the babies. Sorry. <laughs> the heron after its kind, the hoopoe, or the bat. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat all clean birds. And then verse 21, he says, and you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. So in our language, we'd say roadkill. <laughs> so some of you would have been disappointed by that. Others of you wouldn't have minded. Again, it's not bled properly. You don't know why it's died. Does it have some infectious disease? God said, just stay away from it. Well, this is, to me, this is humorous. Verse 21, you don't eat it, but you can give it to the alien within your gates. <laughs> he can eat it, or, look, God's an economist, or you can sell it to a foreigner. <laughs> they won't mind. Be a good steward, God says. Just sell it to them. Make some money off of the roadkill. <laughs> For you're a holy people to the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, again, as we said before, Jesus in the New Testament declared all foods clean. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 there said, Every creature of God is good and nothing's to be refused. It's received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. We do not today live under Jewish dietary code. If you want to eat a certain way, God bless you. We're not under the law. That was something that Jesus dealt with. This was something that God gave to the Jews. In fact, today, Paul just says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you eat or drink, just do it all to the glory of God. You give thanks for it. You appreciate it as God's provision. But again, these were ways that God gave to them as a people to be distinctive, to be set apart. And this special diet was a part of that. In fact, and again, I don't want to, for sake of time, belabor it. We talked about it back in Leviticus. But you notice that little mention there at the end of verse 21. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That is the very term where the Jews, to such a great extent, in their orthodoxy and a kosher diet, reason why they will not eat meat and dairy together. Now, this was a Canaanite practice in that day where this comes from. It wasn't a dietary thing as much as it was an idolatry thing where what they would do, the Canaanite people, is they would boil a young goat in the milk of the mother and it was a concept in their mind that this brought about greater fertility and then they would spread it on their crops and they believed that they would have greater fertility in their crops and so forth agriculturally. And because of the cruelty of it and as well as the idolatry and the practice, God said, don't do that. Now, this, as I said, shows you how some people take a text and they just, it's amazing what people build on a text. It's for this reason why if you go to Israel today or even go to a certain Jewish synagogues, you know, a kosher Orthodox Jew will never mix meat and dairy because of that one statement in the Bible. And they have all these codes and practices whereby, again, you can't eat meat and dairy because they believe if you eat meat and dairy, even in the same meal, that meat and dairy goes into your stomach and the acidic acids may cause it to boil in there and so forth as it's breaking down. And what if by chance the milk from that dairy or piece of cheese 
maybe somehow came from the same meat of the animal that you're eating. And since you don't know that, you could be breaking Jewish dietary kosher. And because of that, they have all these restrictions, separate kitchens and all this. And, and I look and I think, boy, is that not so often what people do with religious practices? They take something and they blow it, make such a... It's the furthest thing from what God's... They take this one little thing and they've created this whole important practice that they observe. But this is why, if you ever wonder why there's that separation, there's where it comes from, right in front of you in the Bible. Verse 22, God says, You shall truly tithe all the inheritance of your grain, the field that produces year by year. So they were to give a tenth, a ten percent of all that came in, a true ten percent of all their crops that came in from their field year by year to bring it to the Lord as an offering. You shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, which ultimately would be Jerusalem where the temple was. The tithe of your grain, your new wine and oil, the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So again, they were to take a tenth whether it was of their herds, of their crops, they were to bring it to Jerusalem and to bring it as an offering to the Lord as they went to the temple to celebrate and to worship there. He says, verse 24, but if the journey is too long, so look at the grace of God, and he makes this stipulation and provision. If the journey is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money and take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink or whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God and shall rejoice you and your household. So God here, verse 24 through 26, puts into play here this, if you would you know, gracious opportunity if they lived really far away. Let's say you lived hundreds of miles or, you know, you know, even a hundred miles away from Jerusalem and you have a really good year and let's say 10% of your herds uh, is, you know, uh, 13 animals uh, and then you have a huge amount of grain and, and to carry all that and to travel with a true tithe, 10% of all that God blessed you with, as he describes there, as the Lord has blessed you, it's just too much. And you can't transport all these animals and wagons and wagons full of grain. Then God said, what you can do is you can sell the, the, the tithe portion of your herds and your crops. You could sell it locally. You could then travel with the money, which is much easier to travel with. You could go to the area closer to where the place of God's presence was in Jerusalem. And then there, you could buy what you needed to make your offerings and your sacrifices. Isn't that interesting? We just looked at this past Sunday morning, how in John chapter 2, how the people took that and they corrupted it to prey upon the people financially. So all of a sudden, they get there and now the animals and the money exchanges are just through the roof and all those kind of things. But here God gives them this way whereby they could come and then when they got there locally, they could spend the money, he says, verse 26, for whatever their heart desired, uh, the sheep and the oxen, and that they could have a communal meal there as they worship before the Lord, again, rejoicing together with their household. They would offer a portion and then partake of a portion as kind of a communal meal and fellowship with God. He says, verse 27, you shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, 
for he has no part nor inheritance with you. And again, this was part of the reason why they were to bring the tithe, as we've seen before, because this was what supported the Levites and the ministers, the priests, so that they could function full-time in the capacity of ministry service within the temple. And every, he says, the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year to store it up within your gates. And the Levite... He has no portion or inheritance within you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work your hand in which you do. So every third year, not only were they to bring a regular tithe, but every third year they were to lay up locally another provision that was to be kept locally, it seems, within their very town where they were at. Remember, there were different Levite cities around them, and that money was to be set aside to help the poor or the stranger or the father. It's a sort of the widow was a benevolence fund. And every three years, the people would make an extra donation every third year to be kept locally to help with the benevolence needs of the widows and the orphans and the fathers that were around them to help care for the people. Look at the end of verse 29. Is God speaking to his people about giving? He says that the Lord may bless you in all the work of your hand in which you do. Again, does God ask his people, does God ask us to give of our resources, which quite honestly he gives to us and entrusts to us because God's greedy or something. God says, listen, I ask you to manage your money in the way I ask you to manage your money so I can bless you in that area. Because if you honor me with your resources and you recognize they all belong to me, and Lord, if you ask for a portion in return that I'm willing to, then, then the Lord says, I, I can bless you. I can honor you if you honor me with what recognizing I've given to you already. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, today for you and I as a Christian, and 1 Corinthians 16 is what we should familiarize ourselves with because we're not mandated from a New Testament perspective to give a particular percentage. The New Testament teaches giving. It teaches the principle of giving by grace, that we purpose in our heart as God allows us to prosper and that we give systematically, which means we give regularly, that, that we give proportionately, which means that we don't necessarily just use a figure, but we say, Lord, according to how you've prospered me and blessed me, this is what I think as I pray, I, this is what I think that, that I can do. Now, do I think that we should take tithing into consideration in our giving? Absolutely. Keep in mind, Genesis chapter 14, Abraham tithed before the law ever came into being. So it's not just a law thing. Jacob himself, in the book of Genesis, prior to the Mosaic law, said, I will give of everything God has given to me a tenth back to God. So is it a good principle in a starting place? I think absolutely. But God doesn't mandate it. We're not under the law. God wants us to give cheerfully as we purpose in our heart and we pray through. And I would say, listen, read 2 Corinthians 9, read 1 Corinthians 16, and you pray and determine how the Lord would have you honor him with your resources that he's entrusted you with as you realize it all comes from him anyway. You know, if I can say something in summary to this chapter here, I would say this. 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us this. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might test and approve what is the good and pleasing and acceptable will of God. This whole chapter is in essence a New Testament summarization of that. God says to his people, I don't want you 
to observe the same practices as the people in the world do, cutting themselves and stuff when people die. And God says, what you indulge and what you participate in, God says, as my people, I don't want you to indulge everything the world indulges. Maybe the world eats and devours and indulges everything under the sun that it's got an appetite for. You're my child. You're different. You shouldn't indulge all the same stuff that the world... Well, everybody, they watch this, they listen to this, they do this, they do that, they satisfy themselves. That's the way they live. You're different. And God says, in the way that you manage what you possess and the Lord's entrusted you, how you manage your money and the way that you utilize what God entrusts you in your life, you don't look to the pattern of the world. God says, you're different. You do things because you realize, Lord, everything I have is yours and I want it all to be used for your glory and the way that you'd have me to do it. Let's stand together. Let's pray.